Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you are listening to episode number 405 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab. What went wrong, and how do we fix it? Mark, T-minus one minute and continuing to count. A water deluge system now has been turned on, activated at the pad area. Pressurization taking place now. The various tanks aboard the vehicle being pressurized. Switching to internal power. All stages switching now to internal power. All propellant tanks being pressurized. Count continuing smoothly. The water at the pad covering the uh, flame deflectors. Now we've passed the 30-second mark. Water also will be coming on to the decks of the mobile launcher at the ignition point. T-minus 20 seconds. And the countdown continues to go smoothly. Guidance release. T-minus 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8. We have ignition sequence has started. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. And we have a liftoff. The Skylab lifting off the pad now, moving up. Skylab has cleared the tower. Houston is now controlling. Eighteen seconds, pitch and roll program started. Saturn now maneuvering. Uh, so they're on their way, this first part. The next 31 hours are going to be critical for this mission, and the next hour and a half, as Roy Neal pointed out, uh, is the most critical part of that period. 31 hours from now, roughly, if all goes well, the astronauts will reach the, um, the Skylab workshop and dock with it and, and be able to handle some of its systems. But as of now, it's entirely on its own with this enormously complicated uh, machine that it has to deploy, it has to turn that heavy telescope so that they can reach it and dock it, it has to extend the solar panel so that it can begin to generate electricity on its own. And remember, this is a, a very, very complicated device, about as big as a three-bedroom house, a huge thing, the biggest thing anybody's ever put into space is going up there now, and um, so we'll have to watch it very carefully to make sure that all of those things work. We'll be back tomorrow at 12.30 Eastern Daylight Time with the manned launch, which is scheduled for 1 o'clock. We'll have a special program then, 
And if anything goes wrong in the meantime, we will bring you bulletins about that. So until tomorrow, for Roy Neal and Jim Hartz, I'm John Chancellor. Unfortunately, everything did not go well, and there would be no crude launch the next day. During the first post-launch briefing, the Director of Launch Operations reported a normal countdown and launch sequence with no concern about the weather during the launch. The Saturn V performed nominally. Inserting the Skylab to orbit was just one second later than scheduled. At an orbital velocity of 25,100 feet per second, the payload shroud jettisoned at 15 minutes 25 seconds into the flight, and the Apollo telescope mount was deployed six minutes later with the four Apollo telescope mount solar arrays unfolding five minutes after deployment. But ground control had not been able to confirm the deployment of the large orbital workshop solar arrays. When the news media asked if that was a problem, the director stated that they just did not know at this early stage. The ground had to wait for telemetry downlink from the next orbital pass over the United States, which would reveal the levels of power and the condition of onboard batteries. If the solar arrays were not deployed, the full 28-day mission of Skylab 2 could not be flown but a reduced mission could be possible once the data from the orbital workstation indicated the state of the vehicle. He also stated that if the solar wings were not deployed, it was doubtful whether the astronauts would be launched the next day. The press next asked if the crew could perform a repair. The launch director replied, Quote, we are not set up for an EVA to do manual solar array deployment type work. The solar wings either go out or do not go out. That is, the astronauts cannot do anything about it. End quote. Now initial studies of the launch data begin to come in. They indicated that at just over a minute after leaving the pad, aerodynamic forces had ripped the micrometeoroid shield from the side of the workshop after a premature deployment, and that the solar wings had for some reason been unable to deploy. In orbit, with no protection to reflect solar heat, the temperature rose to threaten the thermal balance inside of the workshop, producing not only temperatures excessive for any crew that might enter the vehicle, but also risking the stored onboard consumables and delicate equipment. So, if you witnessed this launch, you might have seen what looked like a normal launch, the giant Saturn V with five rocket engines roaring into the sky, passing into a cloud bank. What you could not have seen is the anomaly that occurred 63 seconds into the flight. There was actually airflow 
between the structure of the orbital workshop and the micrometeoroid slash heat shield mounted to the exterior. This airflow got in between the structure of the workshop and the heat shield and ripped the heat shield away. When it did that, two things happened. On one side, there was a solar array that was part of the power generation system that was being held in place by that heat shield. But with the heat shield torn away, it was lost as well. Think of it this way. You're driving in your car and decide to lower the window and stick your hand out. You have probably felt the air pressure on your hand at 60 miles per hour. But the Saturn V was traveling at supersonic speed. So you can understand how quickly that shield would have been ripped off the vehicle. However, there is still another solar array on the other side of the space station. Somehow, when the heat shield was ripped away, a small strap of metal got wrapped around the other solar array, which prevented it from being ripped off, but it also stopped it from being able to extend out once the space station arrived in orbit. At 63 seconds into the flight, there was an indication that the shield had prematurely deployed, but mission control assumed it was an error since everything else was going so well. It took until July 30th for the boards investigating the Skylab 1's mishaps official report to come out. It said that the failure of the micrometeoroid shield 63 seconds into the flight caused the breaking of the solar array system and at 593 seconds into the flight, the second stage retro rocket plume exhaust resulted in the ripping off of the array. The inquiry determined that the most probable cause of the failure of the shield was internal pressurization of its auxiliary tunnel that forced the forward end away from the orbital work station and out into the supersonic airstream where aerodynamic forces tore the shield from the orbital workshop. The pressurization of the auxiliary tunnel was the result of high pressure air entering several openings on the aft end due to imperfect fittings and seals on the structure. Moreover, the venting analysis for the tunnel was based on complete seal on the aft end, and the opening on the end of the tunnel resulted from a lack of communication between the aerodynamic, structural design, and manufacturing personnel teams. The workmanship was sound, and so the failures were due to inadequate communications between the different teams over a period of time in absence of sound engineering judgment 
and alert engineering leadership. Corrective action was applied to the backup orbital workshop in case it was to be flown in the future. Unfortunately, Skylab's condition continued to worsen. Without the orbital workshop's main solar array that supplied 60% of power to the station, there was a serious threat to the planned 140-day manned occupation. They could launch the first crew, and once the command and service module was docked to Skylab, power could be routed from the fuel cells in the service module but only 1.4 kilowatts was available and that would only last for 14 days until the reactants depleted. Failure of these panels, which were designed to furnish about half of Skylab's electrical power, meant that the total power burden would have to be borne by solar panels of the Apollo telescope mount. By early evening, workshop temperatures had risen above the level of safety Launching of the crew the following day received an indefinite hold, pending satisfactory solution. Obviously, the experiment program would be seriously hampered with very little power, and the entire purpose of Skylab as a scientific research platform would be seriously threatened. Shortly afterward, the May 15th launch of Skylab 2 was rescheduled for May 20th, and the three-man crew flew back to Houston to review a new flight plan. The new flight plan was to launch Pete Conrad's crew for a 17-day nominal mission, followed by a further 11 days of just habitation and reduced activity in hopes of providing medical data for a full 28 days. But, as the details of the new flight plan were being worked out, a far more serious problem was developing on the orbital workshop. Within 24 hours of launch, internal temperatures of the workshop were recorded at 38 degrees C and rising. That is over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Initially, it seemed that there was little the astronauts could do, but Pete Conrad was not prepared to abandon Skylab without a fight. It soon became evident that what was needed was a shade to protect the exposed areas. Despite no contingency plans to achieve this or to fix the solar arrays, teams began working around the clock to devise solutions to work the problem and provide answers to resolve the situation in a race to evolve procedures, fabricate material, train the crews, and launch before Skylab was beyond help. Overnight, ground teams continued to analyze the data, and the following day they presented a statement and briefing on the current position of the station as well as the whole Skylab program. Bill Snyder reported on the activities in the NASA centers across the country. Primarily at Marshall, where the main core of the program engineering was located, 
while the team at Houston handled the operational activities of the failing space station. Huntsville was attempting to find a solution to the problem. To make matters more difficult, when the micrometeoroid shield tore off, it took with it the thermal paint pattern designed to balance thermal loads across the sun-exposed surface. This exposed the bare skin of the S-4B workshop to the full force of solar heating. As the controllers witnessed the temperature rise, it was decided to stop the pressurization inside the station until the temperature leveled out. The outside skin was covered with a gold foil layer and the type of aluminum used in the construction of the stage walls would lose structural strength as the temperature increased. In order to not put any more stress on the structure, which might cause a hole breach, pressurization was halted. The temperature levels on the sun-facing side of the orbital workstation were leveled out at 225 degrees Fahrenheit. Flight support and engineering teams were immediately set in motion to find the answers. At stake was the future of the entire Skylab program. The most urgent need was to achieve a thermal electrical balance. This meant maneuvering to an optimum flight attitude for solar requirements that were in direct conflict. Too much solar radiation would drive temperatures higher, increasing the chances of component damage and food spoilage. On the other hand, generation of electrical power to drive heat exchangers and food freezers was wholly dependent on exposure to the sun. While flight controllers struggled to achieve this delicate balance, other teams had the major objective of designing a thermal shield that could be deployed on the workshop to make it habitable. During the night of May 14th and 15th, the orbital workshop was maneuvered to various attitudes to provide a better understanding of how it responded to thermal loads and electrical power requirements. This presented NASA controllers with a choice. To supply the vehicle with maximum electrical power, the Apollo telescope mount solar arrays had to point directly at the sun. However, this would subject the weakened hull to increased thermal loads. Reducing the thermal loads by pointing the smallest end of the station forward toward the sun also resulted in loss of solar array alignment with the sun. Finding that optimal balance of power and temperature between these two attitudes was evaluated as teams of controllers tried to stabilize the power and temperature levels, while others tried to conserve limited thruster reserves. The increased thermal load did not just affect Skylab structure. There were other things to consider as well. Skylab was launched with most of the consumables on board for all three crews, including a margin of contingency. There were no planned resupply missions, 
and the command module on each manned mission would carry only a minimum of fresh supplies to the station. The rapid rise in internal temperature to 54 degrees C caused concern about the provisions stored in the orbital workshop, but tests on the types of canned food stored in the station indicated that they would withstand sustained heat. Therefore, plans to carry replacement foods to Skylab were stopped after it was determined that food would not be altered in mineral content or taste by the heat. However, the astronauts were all provided with added instructions on food inspection. Other concerns about heat included the onboard medical supplies, a stripped-down medical supply list was quickly ordered from the contract pharmaceutical companies to add to the Skylab 2 manifest. Film storage for use on Earth resources photography was also causing anxiety as the heating and drying of the emulsion on the film would render it useless. Kodak engineers informed NASA that it might be possible to restore the film by rehumidifying the vaults by adding new salt packets to provide moisture. However, this procedure could take 20 of the planned 28 days. So, it was decided new film would be loaded into the command module on the pad for the first mission. As for the solar wings, simulation methods were mostly inconclusive. Little was known about the extent of wing damage at this point, and the crew could only speculate on how best to make them deploy. At mission control, solar orientation of the spacecraft had begun to yield positive results. Temperatures, still too high for habitation, were stabilized, and electrical power was sufficient for operating vital systems and equipment. Though still precarious, the situation had been checked. There was reason to believe it would remain stable until the astronauts launch, now scheduled for May 25th, 10 days behind the original schedule. While all efforts in mission control and the contract support team focused on lowering temperatures and providing extra time to prepare for the launch of the first crew, Marshall concentrated on developing replacement surface protection which would be carried on the command module and installed by the crew. In the weeks after the launch, dozens of ideas were offered from both inside NASA and from contractors across America. Some of the more fanciful ideas ranged from spray paint and wallpaper to window curtains deployable weather balloons, and extendable metal panels. From the huge list, 10 were shortlisted for evaluation and partial demonstration within the guidelines of 1. being light, 2. 
the deployment being relatively simple, and three, having the ability to fit inside the command module. NASA centers and private industry responded with a variety of shield concepts. The most promising designs were released for fabrication. Finally, they were subjected to functional testing. By the fifth day of the mission, the choice had been narrowed to a model called the Parasol. It had good functional reliability, and the crew would be able to deploy it from inside the workshop through a scientific airlock. Another shield, the twin pole sunshade, would also be carried on the mission as a backup. Here in the Skylab underwater simulator at the Marshall Space Flight Center, crews practice extravehicular installation of the sunshade in conditions approximating zero G. With input from Marshall and Johnson Engineering Directorates and astronauts, three solutions emerged as favorites for further development. Number one, from a long pole attached to the Apollo telescope mount, a shield would be extended across the exposed metal of the workshop. This required more EVA training than the time allowed, although the astronauts had trained for EV work at the Apollo telescope mount, and in doing so had found that with suitable handholds and portable foot restraints, they could easily face the proposed working area. Number two, a shade would be deployed from the hatch of the command module flying alongside the workshop. This would be attempted as soon as the command module arrived near the station, and the crew would visually inspect the damage before they attempted docking. The problem with this least complex design was actually maintaining station keeping during the stand-up EVA. The third idea, the deployment of a shade device through the Orbital Workshop scientific airlock on the solar side. This was by far the simplest option, as the crew could work from the inside pressurized, however hot, orbital workshop. The problem with this option was in the design of the shade that had to be packaged to fit through the opening just eight square inches, but then unfold to cover an area 23 feet square. In addition, there was no data available to show that the airlock would be free of debris to allow deployment before the astronauts could see it. It was therefore decided to pursue the first two options for Skylab 2 and possibly fly an airlock shade on the second crew once the station had been visually evaluated by the first crew and the temperature hopefully controlled to a more comfortable level. To evaluate the problems and develop the proposals, 
A team at Houston handled the Apollo Command Module deployment method, and a team headed by veteran spacecraft designer Cadwell Johnson constructed the sail to be deployed. By this time, the problems with Skylab had made national headlines, and while building 30, housing the centrifuges at the Johnson Space Center was adequate for the fabrication and testing of the solar cells, it was a stop on the regular public tour route. The team felt a bit self-conscious as if they were working in a goldfish bowl as their activities were observed not only by the rest of NASA and the members of Congress, but also by hundreds of tourists and the world's media outlets. For several days, the teams worked to meet the launch deadline of May 20th. Seamstresses sewed the sail material, and then parachute packers carefully folded and packaged the device, handing it over to designer engineers to attach various fasteners. The major problem facing the team was in obtaining adequate data on the hardware in orbit as they found that engineering drawings were not current and there were, of course, no photographs from space to show the configuration they had to repair. The plan for deployment of this shield would see one astronaut stand in the open hatch of the command module being helped by a second crew member from inside while the third flew the spacecraft. This was termed stand-up EVA, pronounced SIVA, and was tentatively designated the primary shade for deployment. The procedure was as follows. After attaching one part of the shade to the aft end of the orbital workshop, the command module would then maneuver across the rear of the station to allow the attachment to the second point. The command module would then be flown across the exposed area of the workshop, deploying the solar array as it went, until at the Apollo telescope module end, it would be secured off, allowing the crew to then dock normally at the forward port. Meanwhile, at Marshall, teams were practicing an EVA from the Apollo telescope mount. This was method one that I discussed previously. Remember, method two was the stand-up EVA, and it was being worked on at Johnson Space Center in Building 30. Anyway, during the evening of May 15th, Rusty Swigert, who was the backup commander of Skylab 2, and Joe Kerwin, the science pilot for Skylab 2, entered the huge water tank at Marshall, where the Skylab mock-up that the crews used for Apollo telescope and EVA training was conducted. The astronauts 
evaluated several devices, including a window shade device, and determined what an astronaut could see from the Apollo telescope mount and from the restricted view caused by wearing the EVA helmet. Now, I want to take a minute to put this in perspective on what these astronauts were being asked to do in this EVA. In 1973, American astronauts had only accumulated about 170 man-hours on EVAs. However, only 20 hours of this was in Earth orbit or in deep space on the way back from the moon. The other 150 hours was on the 1-6 gravity of the moon, so that can be pretty much discounted. So, the astronauts really only had about 20 hours in microgravity EVAs. Additionally, the difficulties encountered during the Gemini EVAs due to lack of adequate restraints and additional efforts that put a strain on the life support systems were very well remembered. Sending out astronauts this early on a mission for the first time in Earth's orbit since Apollo 9 in March of 1969 and to perform the most rigorous operation since 1966 with only a very short training program was not favored by the Johnson Space Center. Okay. After the water tank simulated EVA, a press conference at Marshall reviewed the experiences of the two astronauts. They concluded that the design needed further evaluation. Within just a few hours of the underwater test, a new design featured two 55.7-foot poles assembled from 11 smaller sections. Of course, they had to assemble it because a 55-foot pole would not fit in the command module. The pole would be cantilevered from the telescope mount. A rope to which the shade was attached would be run along the length of the poles through the eyelets. By pulling on the rope, the deployment of the shade would be like hoisting a ship's sail. Once the shade was hoisted, it was hoped it would cover the problem area. Now that some progress was made on evaluating the methods, a multi-center management teleconference was held on May the 19th. The main topic of conversation was the task of choosing the primary method of solar shield deployment. The first decision made was to delay the launch of the first crew until May 25th, allowing more time for shade development. There was also an agreement to eliminate the stand-up EVA option of Method 2 because it would be at the end of a 22-hour day for the crew and the contamination effects of firing the command and service module reaction control thrusters across the Apollo telescope mount solar panels and telescope were unknown. Furthermore, 
medical officials were against attempting to deploy the twin pole assembly early in the mission before the crew became accustomed to weightlessness. At this point in time, the adaptation to the environment was still an unknown factor and also a major objective for the first crew to gain data on. Surprisingly, the development of the scientific airlock deployment, Method 3, had gained momentum. Tests of the system proved that a combination of coiled springs and telescopic rods could fit inside the standard airlock canister and it could fit into the airlock. Additionally, it could be deployed smoothly. Jack Kinzer of the Houston Technical Services Division at JSC developed the system drawing on his experiences in the Apollo Command Module weight and size stowage limitation. Kinzer made a basic model of the system which clearly demonstrated that as the poles extended and locked, the shade formed a smooth canopy over the area. In the teleconference, both Deke Slayton and Pete Conrad supported the scientific airlock deployment method 3. The decision came down to Marshall's twin pole assembly method 1, which was still 55 pounds overweight, versus the airlock deployment devised at JSC with the stand-up EVA method 2 in back-up third place. Therefore, it was decided to go with the airlock deployment method 3 as the simplest, safest, and quickest method, needing less training and use of consumables. However, NASA hedged their bet by continuing the development of the twin pole system, which would be available for the second crew if needed. Once the decision was made to use the airlock shade, the next task was to develop the material to construct it. The material had to meet several requirements. One, the shield had to be lightweight. Two, it had to be compact and deployable. Three, the material had to be non-contaminating. Four, it had to be capable of withstanding a wide range of temperatures. And five, the shade could not tend to pull back toward its stowed configuration once it was deployed. A daunting task for such a short time. Eventually, they decided to use spacesuit material less than one-half inch thick comprising of layers of nylon, mylar, and aluminum. The nylon had a tendency to deteriorate under ultraviolet rays. However, it could be coated in thermal paint, but this would add extra thickness to the structure and due to the already tight confines of the airlock, it was decided not to use thermal paint. NASA believed the shade would last over the 28-day mission, and the second crew could replace it if necessary. In the final hours of spacecraft closeout on May 24th, the parasol and extra equipment was finally stowed in the cramped Skylab 2 command module on the pad at the Cape. 
Now, with the shade problem seemingly on its way to a solution, there was still a serious power problem on Skylab. NASA did reveal that power supplies would be adequate for the 28-day mission if the demand was reduced significantly, but there wasn't enough power for the two 56-day missions that were to follow. So a plan was devised to launch a solar wing module to dock with the side port on the multiple docking adapter to help alleviate the power shortfall. However, this would also prevent any rescue command service module from docking with the station in the event of a systems failure on the prime command and service module. The solar wing module was being devised by Rockwell International and could be attached to the Apollo Soyuz Test Project docking module and fixed to the radial port, which would still allow a docking by the command and service module in an emergency. Thankfully, another option was discovered. In further analysis of data from the Skylab, what was left on the thermal shield still held one of the large solar wings in place. If the first crew could clear debris on an early stand-up EVA, they could attempt to unfold the restricted solar wing. If the first crew could not do it, the second crew could try. This made rendering the solar wing module redundant. To assist the first crew in freeing the solar array, a selection of off-the-shelf tools was evaluated, and tree loppers were found to be the most adequate. A call to A.B. Chance Company in Centralia, Missouri, which made tools for power and telephone companies, produced a heavy-duty cable cutter and a universal tool with prongs for prying and pulling. Due to the separation distance of the command module hatch and the work area, these were modified for attachment to a 10-foot pole. The procedure was tested in underwater evaluation on May 22nd by... Skylab 2 pilot Paul Weitz. He demonstrated that he could free a mock-up solar wing, but the pointed cutters were a hazard to the spacesuits in the confines of the command module and were replaced by blunt end cutters shipped to the Cape at 0300 hours Eastern Daylight Time on the morning of May 25th, launch day, just before the crew climbed into their command module. The final storage was complete and the final preparation for launch continued. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. 
This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 405 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab, What Went Wrong and How Do We Fix It? want well, to wish everyone a happy new year. I hope you had a nice holiday season. Our next episode should be released on or about January 19th, 2023. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email on the form. We are currently working on the 2023 donors page and we will need a little bit of time to get that up and correct. So if you don't see your name, don't panic yet. Just a little bit of patience. We have to transfer everything over from Patreon and put all the new donors on. Okay. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 225 are available on the Archive Podcast. Check for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. If you'd like, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Space Rocket Hist. And you can follow me on Facebook by searching for Space Rocket History. You can also keep up with me on Patreon.com slash Space Rocket History where in addition to episodes, I post some extra things occasionally. If you missed the live 400th episode show, you can still see the recorded version. Go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the YouTube link, and that should take you directly to our video. The link is on the right side of the page, third box down. If you are a new listener, I really want to encourage you to check this out because it will probably answer some of your questions about the podcast. So go ahead and click the link. As always, I have a few afterthoughts. I would like to apologize for my mispronunciations. And so the meteoroid shield came off during, due to airflow during launch. That airflow got in between the shield and the workshop. Now this air was moving really fast, supersonic speeds. That would probably be enough to rip your arm off if you stuck it out there, or <laughs> if that was possible, or at least break your bones. If <laughs> It was very fortunate that the strap got wrapped around the other side of the workshop, or we would have lost those solar panels on the other side as well. Then they would have had to go with that clunky solution of a solar wing module attached to the Apollo Soyuz test project docking module and attaching that to the radial port so they could still bring in a command module in case there was an emergency. Maybe they would have come up with something better by the time the second crew went up. NASA is super resourceful and they can practically work miracles in a very short amount of time, as is evident from Apollo 13 and Skylab. This is a very similar, in many ways, a situation, because they didn't have much time to get this thing right, or Skylab was going to be toast up there. To me, it was truly amazing NASA could come up with these solutions so quickly. 
especially you know especially when it was heating up so much the mission control had the solution of tilting it toward uh tilting the uh rear toward the sun and that cut off a lot of that heat of course that cut off a lot of power so they had to find a balance in there they had solutions for the situation within 10 days from discovering the problem and they were not only just a solution they were ready to go and just barely made it into the command module before it launched (laughs) that was amazing i guess if they couldn't have got this skylab to work maybe they could have launched the backup i don't know i guess that's possible now i want you to think where would we have been if we could not have gotten that skylab to work properly We learned so much more from it, and it was the foundation for the ISS and long-term space missions as well, as well as a great many other things. So this Skylab was really, really an important step. I wonder how hot that food got before Mission Control tilted the workshop away from the sun if it got to that 225 degrees before i you know i would think twice about eating that the food especially if it was canned meat or something like that seemed like that stuff would boil in there but the astronauts had instructions to check it out i guess that would be something like if it smells bad don't eat it. Anyway, <laughs> I hope I hope you make it back next time. I intend to get Skylab 2 launched with Pete Conrad and his crew because they can fix anything. They said so themselves. In our personal life, we had a really great Christmas. The only disappointment I had was my middle daughter could not attend. But other than that, it was great. Both Mrs. SRH and I got sick the week before, and I still have some leftover. She she got over it fairly quickly. Didn't take her but about a week. She gets over things quicker than I do. She got diagnosed with a sinus infection, and I guess I caught it from her. But we both got on penicillin, and that helped out a lot. Okay, that's all I have for our personal life, for donations. From the last episode until the end of the year, we received 18 donations and pledges. I would like to thank Stuart L. from Arlington, Texas, who sent in another donation and moved to the Voyager level. Sven B. from Melbourne, Australia, donated at the Orion level and earned a satellite emoji. Anonymous donated at the Orion level. Robin P. from Switzerland donated at the Salyut Skylab level and earned a satellite emoji. Andy S. sent in another donation and moved to the Salyut Skylab level. James P. from Texas sent in another donation and moved to the Salyut Skylab level. Gary A. sent in another donation and moved to the Salyut Skylab level. Martin K. from Munich, Germany, donated at the Apollo level and earned a galaxy emoji. 
John E. from California donated at the Apollo level and earned a satellite emoji. Wolfgang S. from Germany donated at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. Jim M. from Franklin, Tennessee donated at the Apollo level and earned a shooting star emoji. Mark N. from Florida donated at the Apollo level and earned a satellite emoji. Woody J. from Minnesota donated at the Mercury level and earned a shooting star emoji. Luke R. donated at the Vostok level. Tracy W. is at the Vostok level with a moon emoji. Matthew M. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Orion level and in January earned a rocket emoji. Travis B. pledged on Patreon at the Orion level. And Gene C. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level and has a moon emoji. Our Patreon donors for the end of 2022 reached 244. Uh, This did not make our goal of 300. However, with the changing of the month to January 2023, the donors dropped to 233. That's a loss of 11, which is a bit unusual. So if you are a Patreon donor, would you please check your credit card for expiration date because... When we have a drop like that, it usually has to do with cards expiring. Uh, We have a goal this year of reaching 300 Patreon donors by the end of 2023. Our total donors, which includes Patreon, PayPal, and uh, checks for 2022, reached 380 with an overall goal of I'm going to make it 450 for this year since we have not come close to 500. To put that number in perspective, the 380 that we got this past year, to put that number in perspective, in 2021, we had 444 donors. In 2020, we had 443 donors. In 2019, we had 487. And in 2018, we had 447. So the last time we were this low was 2017, which was five years ago. So if you are enjoying this podcast that has been running for nearly 10 years without commercial interruption and you can afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Or if you would like to donate by mail, which works great for me, Please use my new permanent address, which has been active for about 12 months now. If you don't know what that is, please email me and I will give it to you. SpaceRocketHistory at gmail.com And by the way, if you began the emoji maneuver last year, now is an excellent time to complete it. And I am now prepared to unveil the new spectacular longevity emoji for this year in honor of completing 10 years of the podcast we have chosen the big 10 emoji this is for donors who have supported the podcast financially for a decade this is an extremely prestigious emoji that we chose to honor those of you who have been with us for 10 years I hope you like it, and we very much appreciate your support over the past decade. 
Now, all supporters of the podcast are rewarded in at least four ways. Contributors' names are added on the donors' page at the level they choose to donate. And there are longevity emojis for multiple years of contributions. That's better explained on the donors' page at spacerockethistory.com. Contributors receive a thank you message from yours truly. And contributors are recognized on the podcast. And contributors are automatically entered in the fortnightly giveaway. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Happy New Year, Space Rocket History friends. The winner for this episode will get the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet or the SRH regular magnet or two stickers or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Troy Wilson. Troy Wilson, if you will email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 380 of you who contributed in 2022. May 2023 be a great year for us all. My sources for this episode were NASA, ABC News, Skylab America's Space Station by David Shaler, NASA's Skylab Owner's Workshop Manual by David Baker, Homesteading Space, the Skylab Story by David Hitt, Outpost on the Frontier by Jay Chadick, Saving Skylab by Hubble, the Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. And that is all I have for episode 405. I will try to have episode 406 posted on or before January 19th, 2023. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.